Nick Mainen is a senior policy officer for the European Environmental Bureau. For over 15 years, he's connected grassroots struggles for justice with the bigger economic system errors that need to change. He holds advanced degrees in geography, conflict studies, and investigative journalism. Nick has investigated environmental front lines all over the world. In the EEB, Nick created and leads the Economic Transition Cluster. His opinion pieces appear in mainstream media, and his third book, Frontlines, Stories of Global Environmental Justice, was praised by critics and voted in the top 10 climate books by climate activists globally. He is currently working on several projects, including his new book, Turning Point, The Pandemic as an Opportunity for Change. Nick is Belgian and speaks Dutch, French, and English. He loves the outdoors, especially hiking in snowy mountains. Nick Meinen, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. So in addition to being an author and a senior policy officer on economic transition at the European Environment Bureau. A quick introduction to the latest publication I've been working on. So what I did is uh, I, I wrote a book, which is now translated to English and French on the connections between the pandemic, our economic system, our climate crisis and ways out of the collective mess because they are all connected, these different uh, crises. And it's by treating them separately that we keep running behind uh, certain facts. I feel your pain, I would say. That's how I start. I feel your pain. You, me, we are all very sick and tired of either Corona itself or its impact on our lives. But I think you and I, are we not also tired of instability, insecurity more generally? There is this new virus, unpredictable lockdowns, but they are just the latest in a series of things thrown at us, it seems, from financial crashes to hurricanes or heat waves. And maybe the real tragedy is not that these shocks to our existence exist, but that we actually have a fairly good idea of where they come from, who is largely responsible for them, what the alternatives are. And yet we seem to fail to change course. The harder question we have to ask is what do we do once we knew. And that's why I, I wrote this book, because I think systemic change across these various crises is now possible. And it's, of course, needed for a long time. But now it's really possible. It's probably even fair to say that the time to reconstruct society, to do a system reboot, uh, sort of, has been never as good now as it has been since 1945, when we came out of the Second World War. It is now as we are in such a deep crisis that we can finally conceive of a new world order and understand that we can leap from following our fears to following our hope and that the great healing of the natural world and the great healing of us humans, our collective immunity can all start together simultaneously. And I think we shouldn't waste this opportunity to, to work on that kind of great healing of, of nature and society and we can only do that if we work together and if we see the systemic changes that we we have to do we cannot just return to normal because the old normal it was broken there was nothing normal about infinite growth on a finite planet with finite resources it's common sense for anyone who understands basic functioning of the natural world that this great acceleration as system scientists call it has been taking us right to the brink through, for example, the climate catastrophe, but also sixth mass extinction, conflicts over natural resources and so forth. But the good news, I think, is the neoliberal normal is not a law of nature. People and planet can thrive together. And 
what we have seen in the last year is that this neoliberal normal is no longer considered the normal by institutions that have defended this idea for, for decades. And they are now coming to terms with the idea that that's not going to continue. We can't just go back to what we were doing before Corona hit. And that's that's the opportunity. That's the, that's the good news from this crisis that we need to now build on because we are far from where we have to be, of course. But there is an opportunity. So I think to wrap up my intro, because I'm, I have a tendency maybe to talk too long, but I think the response from governments to the corona crisis shows that our political arrangements, they are not set in stone. They, they can change dramatically in the blink of an eye. Nobody had expected such a fast change in 2020. But this top-down crisis control, it cannot replace a bottom-up process of systemic change. And that is where our work comes in and where we have to work together with youth and, and with NGOs and unions and, and movements from all over the world as we need to build up the new world together through many ways. So that's just from a bit of my introduction of my most recent publication. We love that opening line because it's so simple and yet it really gets to the core of what we feel your pain. And that's the thing. I think that the pandemic, and you're right, brought so many things that we'd been ignoring or preferring not to see right to the fore. And if one can think positively, we can mobilize very quickly under crises. And then we have to use these strong words, extinction, climate crises. I think you mm -hmm. point that out as well, rather than climate change. It almost mm -hmm, sounds kind mm -hmm. of positive, kind of nice. Change, yeah. I need change. No, if we change the language, we change the way we think about it. Exactly. Uh, so, and we should say that that's not your first book. I think you've written four books. It's true. Uh, I have four original books in, in Dutch, and one of them was already translated to English uh, two years ago, Frontlines. Stories of Global Environmental Justice it was also well received by young climate activists. And now there is this, this fourth book in Dutch, which is being translated to English and French, which deals with this interface between pandemic, climate change, economic system, which will be called the turning point. The pandemic has an opportunity for change. And that's exactly how I see it. And, and it's a bit different from my other books because I, the others, I wrote them independently from my office job for the EEB working as a, a lobbyist for the environment in Europe, I would say, defending the public interest that 40 million Europeans who are a member of some environmental organizations somewhere in Europe, they are in, indirectly members of the EU. But aside from that official capacity, I've, I've been writing my other books, but this one is different because I brought it to the EEB and I, I convinced others in the EEB that actually this is the kind of message that we, we need to add to other work we already do, which is more day-to-day -day political work and nitty-gritty on, on, on specific legislations. But there is, a, there is a need which I've identified among the environmental movement is to have that narrative for the bigger changes. So we are, a lot of people are, are done and tired about all these small-scale, go to the thrift shop, buy a better label. And, and they see through, especially young people, they see through that green consumption is not going to be the solution for all our ills right now. We need something bigger. We need something more systemic. And we need a coherent story around that, how to get there and, and what, what that actually means to be more radical, more systemic. So that's what I try to add to the other work we already do. And I was happy and lucky enough that uh, my directors uh, were, were agreeing with this idea. So now it's going to be an EB book, although it's still a, a vision by Nick Mannon. So it's a bit of a hybrid. Well, exactly, because activists recognize that we need to work and have the support of institutions and NGOs, uh, such as the European Environmental Bureau. And uh, yeah, we cannot work alone. 
the individual has to work within and have the support of larger structures. Share us this poem as well, because it, as you said, you know, narratives are important. The stories, not just of the big picture, but the personal stories. So exactly, you have okay, a poem well, that kind of encapsulates this. Thanks. So there was once, not long ago, a time when we believed that we were untouchable, unshakable. The pinnacle of evolution was achieved. Make way, make way, forest, sea, and glacier, because we, the top of the food chain, we want our daily buffet of meat and fish and coffee and spice, of cars and gadgets and all that is nice, and whatever's left of paradise that our good friend money can buy us. And still our hunger was not stilled. Times of plenty could not suffice. Then came a sound, distant first, that grew into cacophony. It brought the news of catastrophe. A virus not to be ignored was born, and with our planes, it took wings and brought us down like kings uncrowned. With our seatbelts fast and still, it locked us down inside our houses, shell-shocked, cast into our cells that were once our castles. It spread like wildfire, and like fire, oil fueled its flames. We thought we were untouchable, and now we think again. With ringing ears, we clung to fears when all we needed was healing. Our trembling hands were quick to pave new plans, a road to recovery, and new normal suddenly appearing. But haven't we forgotten to then to ask ourselves first, what is the true nature of this beast with whom we're dealing? If we're attacked but fail to adapt, then we can win a battle, but we won't win a war. What do we hope to achieve then, if we can't see the true nature of the beast is ours? And isn't it a shame that when the lab results came, in, in, instead of looking at ourselves, we played the finger-pointing game? And isn't it ironic that to realize this beast's real identity, it takes an invisible virus to see it's our own hunger that can never be appeased. An outstretched hand is reaching out. This is more than a bitter speech about the things we wish were better. How often have we been resistant, hard-hearted or hard-headed? We can trade more in ideas and less in goods. Give our food system new roots. We can hijack an economic system out of whack. We can stay grounded, get back on track. This crisis bursts with opportunity, so let's all be go-getters. The future is in all our hands. Let's change it then together. Thank you. So I, I really appreciate that positive message and something that we can all relate to as we have to really reset our lives and our thinking turning point truly and so I'm just wondering in terms of your path to becoming a, an environmentalist and a lobbyist was it immediately evident uh, for you that that would be a path you would pursue how did you realize this is how you're going to spend your life well no this this wasn't something I was born with or grew up with this is more something you uh, stumble into with bits and pieces by through experiences basically because I think I studied geography and geography is about the connections between humankind and natural systems so you already have there your basis for 
understanding the natural world and the connections with how we operate our economies. But that doesn't mean that you immediately become uh, a hardcore activist chaining himself up to, to some oil station or something. Yeah, I would say it came by little shocks like history. History also is not a gradual process. It also comes with sudden shocks like the fall of the Berlin Wall. And for me, maybe my experiences in, in Nepal, where I, I did some studies, I did some volunteer work, and I, I was maybe directly confronted also with, on the one hand, global inequality issues, and on the other hand, opportunities coming from globalization as well for the Nepali people, which were then the opposite of what we experienced from our side. They were more problematic issues, like the moving of jobs, and then also climate change in Nepal as well. It was, it was really prominent there with glaciers melting into lakes that then burst out of their small temporary beds to create kind of tsunamis in the mountains, which was something I didn't know before. But then I saw what the effect of these things were by visiting a, a valley where, where such a thing recently happened. And, and then seeing how people move away from their natural environment uh, where they were working and living in harmony for for generations because the climate change didn't allow the, the next generation to stay anymore. And yeah, that became a topic for me. And then I started working for environmental NGOs and then seeing through negotiations as well. I was in Rio in 2012 when the big agreement was made, which then led to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, becoming the global agenda, which is supposed to then address our global problems. But as I was there in, in this deep in this process, I quickly sensed and, and we were lucky enough that the Belgian delegation allowed the NGO people really in the room when the negotiation happened. I, I, I quickly sensed like this is not going to solve our problems. This is, this is an agenda which was really dominated by Brazil, China, India, and which is very much focused to say, still on growth and, and which is from their perspective, maybe what they need. But it's clear like this agenda doesn't go far enough. And we are seeing it already. I mean, we're not on track to meet the SDGs and it's a very simple reason. SDG 8 is an SDG that says that all countries need economic growth. That's still just not longer possible. So we need bigger alternatives. So I've been then focusing my attention on, well, there was this degrowth community within the ac academic world where it was very small 10 years ago, people from the academic world, economists saying, actually, like we need degrowth. I was like, What's that? And, and got into that and then realized, well, this is something really different. It's the challenge is how to translate this into workable policy options that can be explained to a wider public. So I kind of specialized from there into more systemic changes than what the things like the SDG have to offer on us. And, and now I'm basically a paid uh, rebel, <laughs> somebody who's paid to poke holes in the military, military industrial complex, which is which is kind of a, a, a nice thing to do and try to unpack these complex alternatives in economic terms for a wider audience through books, articles, opinion pieces, and policy positions like a, a post-growth future, which is the politically correct term for what the academics call degrowth, is really a, a positive future where you plan for the reality that you cannot grow infinite on, on a finite planet. And if you plan for it and you manage this well, you can actually create even more well-being for more people than in the current system, which is just headed for, for disaster. And that then gave me new inspiration um, to see that actually it's a, it's a positive alternative. Yeah, well, I love that term degrowth and what it means. And if you're looking to nature, you know, we 
in nature, we, we prune trees, you know, maybe yeah. they're dying outgrowths. And that's what we have with our energy systems, fossil yeah. fuel. I mean, nope, it's not... Nope. Alive. No, nothing grows uh, forever in nature. I mean, we stop growing when we are around 18 years or 20 years. But somehow we believe that in our economy, every company and every uh, production process needs to keep growing. And somehow we've hit and crossed the limits of what is uh, tolerable for the ecosystem globally. And that leads to all these problems that we then run behind. We're basically trying to mop the wet floor while we do our environmental work, while the tap is still open in the back of us. Uh, and the tap is this idea that you can grow infinitely from extraction to production, to trade, to consumption, and then clean up the mess afterwards. Well, one part of my work is to help the science around this, who is clear that actually this decoupling idea, decoupling of you can grow economically and then reduce environmental harm is a myth. And we published a report two years ago, decoupling debunked, which was basically a PhD thesis from a guy who did a research of all the studies on decoupling out there to say that sufficient, adequate kind of decoupling that we need between economic growth and environmental harm is just not happened anywhere and it's not going to happen in the future either. And then we published that study and a year later, the European Environment Agency, which is part of the institutions, they also published their studies saying that, well, if Europe wants to like, meet its environmental targets, we need to get rid of this growth idea. So you see the Momentum going from first academics 10 years ago to NGOs, us, to the European Parliament, to the European uh, Environment Agency, to some people in the commission even, and not everyone. But you see the momentum growing for, okay, we need something really different. And this is not a capitalism, communism, black, white, zero, one discussion. This is much broader because growth is, is in both capitalism and communism. This is a, not a left-right issue. But if you look at it historically, we have 5,000 years of money and depths and economy in that sense as humanity. But we only have 200 years in which growth is important and only 50 when growth is above everything else. And these are the last 50 years where we have placed our protections of people and nature on the altar of this God that we call growth, the, the neoliberal God, that they, they just elevated it to an even higher level. And that's the same period of the Great Acceleration where, where things went south quite soon. But it's, again, it's not a nature law. This is a recent thing. And this recent thing, this recent theory has had its time, which has caused a lot of damage. But now with this crisis, even the IMF, even the economists are saying, we're not going to go back to the neoliberal era. And they were defending this era for, for decades. So I have hope <laughs> that maybe we can now transition to something maybe like a well-being era where countries are already saying we want to be a well-being economy and like New Zealand telling every ministry tell us how you're improving the well-being of the New Zealand people every ministry so that means the well-being has become the the god who rules over the others there are countries like Bhutan who have 30 years of experience in doing that they just call it gross national happiness and by the way with great success they've raised life expectancy they have reduced poverty in record ways and they are carbon neutral. They absorb more emissions than they emit. So it's just to say that it's really possible to do things differently. Small countries have experience. Bigger countries are trying it out right now. The debate in Europe is hot on this topic. I think in the US, there is also some movement around, for example, this new Green Deal. So yeah, there are good things happening and I'm, I'm quite hopeful. 
Yes, I, I mean, people have been calling it what you're the, the older model or this model that we live in now that's capital of scene and not instead of the Anthropocene. Mm. And, and so speaking about targets, what are your hopes for the COP26? What are your expectations? Wow, that's a tough question. To be honest, I don't follow the COP process that closely. And to be also honest, I've been to one of the COPs in 2008 and I came back a bit disillusioned. So I, I don't want to say it's worthless, but I don't have my biggest hope on the process at the COP, to be honest. It's necessary. It's something necessary. We have to get together. It's just something we have to, we can't just have the illusion that we're going to solve our problems without global cooperation. So it's needed, but it's proven from the last 25 COPs that it's not enough yet. I, I have more hope in things like Extinction Rebellion and and the Galande is in Germany uh, to really bottom up movements or Greta Thunberg and Friday for Future. These kind of movements are really changing the debate, at least in Europe, as far as I can see. After the last elections, we had a surge of green European Parliament people from Germany, for example, coming in on the back of all these protests all over Europe, which were instigated by Greta Thunberg. So that changed our possibilities at the commission level. And the new commission is also much greener and making laws, which go, for example, we've gone from 40% to 55% of target for emission reductions by 2030. Of course, far from enough, we need to do much more. But the leap, the jump has been massive. And this is thanks to the bottom-up pressures, I think, and not due to the COP processes. So my hope is more in the combination of these bottom-up system change advocates and making sure that the, the people in power, especially my part of the world, are aware of the opportunities that are out there to do things really differently. Because sometimes you get that, like from policymakers, yeah, but you know, what's the alternative? If you're going to degrow, oh, so you're against jobs. These kind of reactions are, are always there. And, and well, we explain them. We have a report on escaping the jobs and growth treadmill, for example, with Tim Jackson, a prominent academic from the UK, explaining that it's not because you go for a post-growth future that automatically you have less jobs. That's not a nature law. That's a political arrangement, which can be done differently. And here's how. So that's our role then as NGOs to, to provide these detailed policy alternatives. And then there's a really big role for these movements which are jamming the system on the ground, which are creating another political debate, which go far beyond these soft, wear another sweater on Earth Day and, and buy green things. And that's where I get more hope, to be honest, from than from the COP. But it's needed. And who knows, something big comes out of it, then I'll be pleasantly surprised. You're listening to Mia Funk's interview with Nick Menyon of the European Environmental Bureau. I'm your co-host for this episode, Mara Kelly. Nick's last point is a good one that many of us have realized in one way or another. Small consumer-based changes are just not going to be enough. The sweeping changes that government and like-minded agencies can bring in to protect our environment and ourselves are necessary. He refers to this as the top-down change. He also speaks on how critical continuing that bottoms-up approach is. Citizens uniting, saying enough is enough. We cannot continue to let large corporations and government exploit nature and people in pursuit of that neoliberal God, endless growth. I love that phrasing from Nick, by the way, because it's true. What does GDP growth actually mean in the grand scheme of things? 
if in the future you can't spend more than 10 minutes outside because of air quality or extreme weather. Losing our favorite natural places, losing our biodiversity, losing our way of life is what's at stake here. Make no mistake. That's why it's so crucial for each one of us to keep up energy in this fight, despite discouraging stories at times, which is something I struggle with as well. Nick will touch on later covering many of these stories in his book, Frontlines, Stories of Environmental Justice, and some of the environmental wins by people that he's personally witnessed. We've had several different stages of an industrial revolution. I don't think it's wrong to say now that we need an environmental revolution in the fields of business and economics. Growing recklessly without care of surroundings is how single-celled bacteria and cancer behave. That is the path we're on for the Earth. With that, let's get back to our interview with Nick Meng. It's a pleasure to be here with you as well. You did mention you kind of have to go beyond even traditional economics at its core. You know, I was in my master's just a year ago. I was taking classes that really emphasize these traditional economic policies. And I was frustrated because I didn't really see what you're mm -hmm. talking about kind of be incorporated into the curriculum. And I think that's a really big problem. How in your mind do we need to address it? Do we need to bring this in and kind of fundamentally change the way we, we teach economics or look yes. at it? And then also, you know, what would you to that traditional economics that says too much regulation, like environmental regulations, mm -hmm will just mm. hinder businesses from that necessary growth and innovation mm. leading to lower GDP and, and ultimately that lower quality of life. These, these are the kind of lock-ins in our system that we need to get beyond. A lock-in means we've set something up long time ago and we stick to it for reasons usually of defending certain vested interests, people who want to keep it like that. But there is a whole movement in the world like reading economics who want to change the curriculums of the economy classes worldwide with things like prosperity without growth from Tim Jackson or with the donut economy from Kate Roward. She's very active on changing curricula globally as well. So you, you could have a look at that deal. It's, it's a donut economy action lab, how that lab stimulates change of economic curriculums all over the world. And reading economics has another part on that. She speaks uh, together with me as well, Kate, in a documentary, The 25% Revolution. If you Google that, you'll see a 20-minute documentary using other economic models for teaching and policymaking. I mean, in that same documentary, you'll see that the donut economy model from Kate, it's applicable. Brussels is now trying it out. Tokyo is looking at it. Amsterdam has some experience with it. You know, it's not like some hippie, wishy-washy, just imagination. It's rather that... These better economic systems, they, they don't just come from themselves by just arguing, by just reasoning, because there are always vested interests who are going to lose out if we go for this well-being economy or donut economy. These are usually the most deep-pocketed people <laughs> who are going to lose the fossil fuel industry, and they pay merchants of doubt. They pay scientists to, to raise, to, to continue teaching or making papers which are putting doubt into this idea that, yeah, decoupling debunked, for example, when we published that, we got also a backlash of people trying to, to say that the study was flawed, but the study wasn't flawed. It was backed up by many other people. Like we basically proved that you can't have green growth forever. You can't, but it's still being teached. 
So using that study as a student and waving it maybe to your professor, it might already help. Like, have you seen this? Why aren't we learning about this? You know, or the donut economy or uh, prosperity without growth. I mean, of course, you can't just as one student on your own change the whole system. But I do think we have seen examples of it, like students coming together in groups, talking about these other alternative economic teachings, and then making actions towards their university. What we have seen also like in universities worldwide is a divest movement. I mean, that's another model where, where students have come together saying to their university, we can't keep investing our funds into fossil fuels. You're teaching us, but you're destroying our future. How can you do both, you know? And they have been successful in, in removing billions, if not trillions from investments into fossil fuel industry. Well. That was student power that made that. And the same student power can change how the economy is being taught all over the world. So yeah, you're encouraged <laughs> to look into that. Yes. And so it's important to know where our money, even, you know, where we bank, all these things, where that's going and what it's supporting, because a lot of greenwashing going on. It's true. It's interesting because in your book, uh, you use the story of Icarus as a metaphor flying too close to the sun, which I think is a great metaphor for what we're doing and, and global warming and, and all of this. And I reflect on that. And, you know, I veer wildly as I hear all these different stories. Uh, we have to make this decision about how we're going to get to 100% renewable energy, if we can make it there. I mean, that's still, a, I've heard, you know, from Hans-Joseph Fell saying, we, if he, you know, combined our efforts, we could do it in 10 years. I don't know how optimistic that is. He's, he lives that lifestyle. On the other hand, then there's pragmatists who may be saying that we do need to have a combination of nuclear. And, and I don't know because I change my mind as I listen to different people who have different perspectives. What, what is your view on nuclear and what other pathways to 100% renewable net zero? Okay, I have two responses to that. One is I have a little story to tell about France and nuclear. So half a century ago, France had 200 uranium mines in France. And they dug up their own uranium, which they needed for their own nuclear power. But after a while, people got sick, people protested. There was a lot of pollution from these uranium mines. And then legislation came and new norms came to protect the people and the environment. And in the end, all the uranium mines in France have closed, all 200. And there is still money being used to try to clean up some of the sites and much more money needed to clean up much more of the sites. That's the battle they are having now is, is, is to clean up the, the mess from the uranium mines. However, while all the uranium mines have closed, France still has massive amounts of nuclear energy and power. Most of the electricity, by the way, also in Belgium, comes from nuclear. So what has happened then? We have exported the problem. We have exported the problem to Niger, where you have this massive uranium mine from the French state company, which has grown in these same 50 years. With a city of 200,000 people around this mine, just because of the mine in the middle of the desert. And one fourth of the houses in this city is too radioactive to live in, according to norms in France. People get cancers. There is no running water. There is no electricity. People are almost enslaved to work in these mines there so that France can keep using its uranium for their nuclear energy. So what we have done, we've exported our pollution to what the World Bank in a secret memo calls the underpolluted countries, which is a terrible name, 
for countries like Niger, where the state company Areva, French state company for nuclear energy, is four times bigger than the country Niger. So you can imagine who runs the show in that country regarding setting up regulations or letting people of Niger protest. No, it's not, it's not going to work because this one company is four times bigger. So France didn't solve its nuclear energy problem. And they also nuked uh, lots of Polynesian islands with their testing for nuclear energy. That's another story. But if, if, you, if you look at the whole global picture, it's still a very problematic industry. And then my second reply would be, well, why are we always discussing the, just replacing one problem with another problem. Nuclear is a problem, oil is a problem, coal is a problem, and maybe even some wind and, and, and solar can be seen as a problem if you have problems of like reliability, they also need resources. Why are we not talking about the real issue here is that do we need the amount of energy that we now need to give, live a good life for everyone? And if not, can we maybe with half of the amount of energy we're now using still do very well for the vast majority of people, maybe even better than now. And I think we can. And that's what degrowth academics look at. Like, how can we reduce the actual demand in such a way, in a socially just way, that we keep benefiting. We, we keep getting the benefits from energy, but not the excesses, not the greed. There is enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. That's what Gandhi said half a century ago, but it's still applicable to our energy needs as humanity. And an example of this, like, I'm part in Belgium of an electric car sharing system. Car sharing is super important because if you just move from a BMW to a Tesla, you're not helping the environment. Because to build the Tesla, you need 20 years of driving before it starts getting less emissions than the BMW. It's just a massive car with a massive battery, with massive mining. And then after 20 years, maybe it'll get like less emissions than the BMW because of its electricity. But if you go to car sharing and 10 families use one car, with nine times less extraction, production, trade, and shipping around the globe to make these cars, then you're making a big change. Then you're also reducing your energy needs. Of course, it, it needs to go hand in hand with investments in public transport, building cities in such a way that you don't need this car in the city anymore. And there are examples of that too. So these are the more systemic changes that we could also go for. And then we don't need that amount of energy anymore. I, I'm not saying now like 100% kit, stop with that energy and stop with that one. I, I rather shift the conversation towards do we need so much? And it's important in Belgium where now we're having a discussion in this autumn, are we going to keep some of our nuclear power stations open or are we going to invest 2.6 billion euro into new gas powered electricity stations, government subsidies by a green minister? That's even ironic. Because the Greens are so wedded to closing nuclear that they're now willing to pay 2.6 billion to, to make gas electricity power stations so that they can close the nuclear. I'm like, whoa, wait, <laughs> that's, that's not the real choice. That's just replacing one problem with another. And we're talking about like the possibility of having three days in winter in a row with no sun and little wind and, and cloudy. And then it might be a problem. Well, maybe we can find other solutions to to close down the most electricity demanding industries for these three days and, and pay them out for compensating them for these three days. And that goes against maybe a certain logic of these industries are of national strategic importance, or you can't do that because it's bad for GDP. But actually, why? I mean, if you look at the whole, maybe the well being of people in Belgium is better off if we don't build new gas powered electricity stations and pay for them. 
and still close the nuclear power stations and then deal with having less energy available. First of all, through energy reductions where we can. And then if we don't have enough, then we should maybe look at, well, who are the really big users? And can they maybe be asked to do an extra effort uh, or forced to do an extra effort? Because I believe in yeah, governments just at some point need to take action. If, if we just leave it to the free market, then, then we see what happens. Then, then we get everything we see now from climate chaos to corona. Yes, exactly. I think that it has to be in tandem. One, live within limits, redefine mm. our limits and, and our real needs. And I guess what I was curious about, because you do hear these different perspectives, is that I want 100% renewable energy, net zero. I mean, that's the dream, I think, of every person, mm-hmm. um, except for the fossil fuel industry and maybe the nuclear. But those on the nuclear side say oh, well, we've done the math and there's a smaller footprint. These are the positives. I say, oh, there's a smaller footprint. The waste can be contained in, you know, less space. We're not destroying ecosystems to have, you know, wind farms taking up so much space and everything. And the things that you hear, and that's what confuses, I think, a lot of people. And then they say that, well, the uh, solar cells can't be recycled you know there's a waste involved in that or the the wind farms and then the obvious things wrong with nuclear you know it's exhausting so what solutions are there solutions towards the flaws or the imperfections in the wind farm and solar energy you know are there ways around it maybe i mean obviously rooftop solar but you know just tell us some of the real practical solutions that you've seen and heard about well, I, there is continuous innovation in these sectors. I think last week I got the news about from some researcher in Australia developing the cheapest solar cells ever without involving any silver mining to make the solar cells. He managed a way to replace the silver that's in all our solar panels now with uh, copper, which is much more abundant and easier available. Another invention was a schoolboy in Nepal making making with some horse hairs that he was just putting tension on for a very cheap way. He was able to turn a light bulb on and have at least some electricity in his house in a rural village. And it cost him like $10 to do that. And you know, there is this movie even about this guy in some sub-Saharan African country. Great movie, I can't remember the name now, but of a guy who made his own windmill and then saved his village from from the draw that they were having. I mean, all over the world, people are, are... inventing with scrap materials, things. And so it doesn't have to be the most non-circular windmill or non-circular solar cell. It is true that there are problems in these industries. It's again an issue of power and unequal power division. Like you have companies that go to Kenya and build 200 windmills, massive windmills in the middle of Maasai country. And then these people just have to move out because the company just came there and did a land grab. And that's of course problematic. And then you have the other extreme end here in Belgium, you have EcoPower, which is a cooperative by civilians who pooled money together to start with one windmill and then a few more. And this, this cooperative has grown over time. It's one of the oldest on wind energy, maybe the oldest, like 20 years already in Belgium. And, and we own our own windmills and we, we have discussions on where to put them, how, and then you can make choices about your materials and your locations and and sustainability in general about your whole chain. So 
it boils down to that, I think. If you do the effort of working together with like-minded people and you pull your resources, your ideas, then you can come up with solutions which are decentralized, which are more sustainable than if you just leave it to the massive market players who are just seeking shareholder profits. And it's, it's possible and it's already happening. But it's true, like you mentioned, there is a, I mean, there are big differences between a windmill is not always a windmill. I mean, it depends on who owns it, where it's placed, at what expense, who benefits from the electricity that it produces and, and who loses out. So you still have to see the whole picture. It's with everything in the economy. If you just blind yourself from a part of the whole life cycle or the whole chain, you're deceiving in a way yourself and society in general. So if you look at the whole picture, the whole life cycle, then you'll see big differences and choices that can be made. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. The boy who harnessed the wind. That's the name. Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a great movie. So yeah, you've touched on some of these stories that were kind of known in one of your more popular past books, Frontlines, Stories of Global Environmental Justice. So you gather these environmental clashes between businesses, governments, and people kind of detailing who takes what from the earth and how. And this was done over a decade of research by you and your team. In that time, did you kind of notice certain themes, you know, negative or positive that kept kind of cropping up in each story, whether it's, you know, climate lawsuit in the Netherlands or the mm -hmm. land grabbing in Uganda or the sand mining in Dubai? Is there mm -hmm. some kind of central themes to these stories here and experiences? Yeah, there's a multitude of stories, of course. There are more than 3,000 now in this global atlas of environmental justice. And I just selected a couple of the best stories that I found to then write this book and then connect it to this bigger picture of our world economy. But maybe I can mention a bit about what I've seen as a trend across many of the things. One of, one of five of our 3,000 cases that we found over the course of 10 years was deemed successful by the activists as being, we managed to score a victory or, or stop the destructive project or turn it around and build an alternative, whatever way they describe success, they found it a success. And so one of these success stories was about these two Indian people going to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, basically to take a kind of revenge on what a London-based mining company was about to do to their holy place in India, which was a, a rich full of uh, tropical rainforest, clean water, fruits, animals, and, and also their gods, in a way, nature gods. And so they were going to St. Paul saying, can we mine this place, good stones? I mean, we just need to have some permission from some London mining authority and then we can mine it, right? I mean, that's how you're doing it with us in India, you know? And they had a media stand around it with an ad in the Financial Times that day that showed a wrecking ball smashing the St. Paul's cathedrals. I mean, you can imagine the shock to the people of the city of London walking to their Goldman Sachs desk and then opening Financial Times and seeing this image. Well, well these guys, they won. Uh, that battle after 10 years and the trick I think with them and with many others is they did first everything they could at the local level. They did the talking at community level. They have their village meetings in which they discuss these mining plans and found agreement among them that this would actually like, do more harm than good to their society, to their communities. So they had a lot of getting together as a community about it. And then they did petitions and demonstrations in India for many years to try to stop it. And then they went, even went to court in India. But they had to do all of that, but it wasn't enough. When they then found this connection with this group in the UK, 
Action Aid, which was also looking at stopping these massive mining projects, that's when they secured the victory because then they could come to London and bring the battle home to where the headquarters of this company were, creating a media stir and raising questions because you know what? One of the big investors of this mining giant that was having these big plans was the Church of England. And of course, they didn't like that there was kind of revenge on the St. Paul's Cathedral in the Financial Times happening and they withdrew their investment. And then the whole thing fell apart and the stock prices crashed of this company and, and 7 billion investment was canceled. But the success, I think, was first they did the proper thing locally, you know, the, the talking, mobilizing, making a movement, doing what they can. And then they connected internationally. And there are so many strong things happening, I see, if you have these Western NGOs or movements finding a common ground with grassroots movements somewhere far away in the world and seeing like, hey, we're actually fighting the same battle on different front lines, you know, because we are also wanting to have less mining because of less destruction for climate change, for example, and they want less mining because it destroys their own local environment. And, and we come at it maybe from different angles, but if we pull our resources and ideas and strengths, that's when we can go one plus one becomes three and you can make a stir and suddenly people pay attention and they secure the victory and they have a common enemy you had that and you had multinational collaboration that was stronger than the multinationals who were about to destroy some area. So through the internet, through networks, it's now easier than 30 years ago to establish these connections, meaning we now have more potential through this internet and these international networks is there, but it needs to be harnessed. It needs to be identified, recognized. We are still far apart. I mean, we don't always know who is fighting on what front where. But another thing we did is we made a map of all the people fighting in the world against one company, Chevron, who had all these conflicts with people in Ecuador, other people in Romania. And they, the people in Romania didn't know about the people in Ecuador. But they were actually both facing the same corporate warfare strategy. And by bringing them together and learning from each other, they were able to then exchange on strategies for, for fighting back. So it's about connecting these isolated cases with each other, helping them, giving them capacities, bringing activists and science together. I think that's also a big one. And students, you know, you need young people motivated to get active in some kind of difficult struggle because these things are difficult. They are not making your day bright. If you look at what Chevron does in Ecuador, it's, it's really painful. So you need, I think, the energy of young people. You need local grassroots activists and then you need experts or legal experts like this lawyer. You mentioned the court case in the Netherlands who can then help these activists to strengthen their case. And by the way, I think another thing I wanted to certainly mention because I think this is mainly for young people the way I learned is there are a lot of negative energies around fighting these big, powerful players. And it's sometimes hard, you know, to keep up psychologically, to keep up with it. So what you also need to do, I think, is just some fun nature-linked activities. I mean, community farming is fun. You just have a community of people, hands in the ground. We have this weekend a party with a campfire and music and a buffet and just coming together and... You know, these positive energy things, local, are, are also important to keep going. It's just, for me, it's like my life lesson maybe is for me is a yin and yang thing. I, I keep engaging in these local fun environmental things, but I don't have the illusion that just going to a community farm is going to make all the other problems go away. But I thank positive energy there 
which I then have as a reserve when I'm dealing with these more powerful struggles with Chevron and with big oil in general, which are hard psychologically. So go back in the weekend to nature, to communities. You know, nature is therapy. Nature is the cheapest therapy that's out there. Just connect with forests, with trees. To that's a it's a powerful, important message. We do need to restore ourselves as much as we need to restore the natural world. Yeah, reconnect with the soil and with the earth and the forest and the farm and so forth. Whenever you see some opportunity to do so, ideally together with other people, because that's when. You can share your emotions and that's also therapy in a way, you know, if you share these anxieties that you have around the world system collapsing or about big oil, sharing is already the beginning of caring together about this. You're not alone in this fight, you know? Yes. And so you have, I, I believe you farm on your allotment. Uh, another big contributor to uh, climate change is, of course, food and food waste and the emissions it causes. So what are your feelings about the future of agriculture and how we need to, you've written about this as well, the future of meat as well in your yeah. latest book. You know, what are your reflections on that? And what are some things that we, we can use to implement change? Well, yeah, I, I do use community support farming for the last 10 years. So there is first one and now three farmers who are doing the farming work as experts as they are. And then there are 500 people who once a year just decide that I want to take a share of your harvest this year. And we pay a couple of hundred euro, which also depends on our income. We can choose a bit, you know, around an average that he needs the farmer. And then in collaboration with him, we, we have sometimes talk, which kind of crops are we going to change this year, you know? And then he, he does his work. We go there and harvest whenever we want. And we just take it out of the soil ourselves as much as we can eat as a family. It's not for sharing to others. And it works on confidence, on trust. It works on respect for producer and consumer. They know each other. We know our farmer. So we're not going to cheat on him. You know, he has a family to raise as well. And this personal bond, it, it, it makes for a very productive farm, actually. So he was the first in Flanders to do this 15 years ago, CSA farming, but there were, it came from the US and UK where it exists for longer. And now in Flanders, we have 50 of these kind of systems where in each case, you have hundreds of people coming. And I even managed to bring this guy to the parliament in Europe to explain his model because in Europe, we have such a bad model of a common agriculture policy where we are uh, just recently, it was a UN study, 90% of the farm subsidies we give in the world are causing more harm to people and planet than good. 90% and in Europe, it's the biggest budget is agriculture. So it, it's not based on is the farmer making choices that help the climate in sense of you can make crops in a way that they are taking carbon in the soil again, but that's not being rewarded at all. No, we are, we are giving subsidies to, to the estate of Prince Charles and these kind of likes of them, you know, that's just not working. So bottom up, there are alternatives happening in France as well. You have a lot of movement there with Oasis, there's a map. People are really thinking of how can we relocalize our food chain? And we've become also so dependent from this global just in time, food crisscrossing the globe. We're becoming dependent from people in Poland coming to Belgium to harvest our fruits. Uh, and that system with Corona is also exposed as, as a weakness, as a vulnerability. I mean, if the borders close and these people don't make it here, our fruits are just hanging out the trees because we Belgians, we, we're, we're too lazy or we unlearn doing this ourselves. It's low paid jobs. And, and even our bread now, it's an import export product. Uh, like the bread that we buy in the supermarket in Belgium, if you go in Carrefour, it, it's a good likelihood it comes from Germany or even Poland, the bread. And 
we should think about that and think about new routes for our system. And the good thing is these CSA farms, but also other models where you have delivery groups, they have exploded during the corona pandemic. People have seen like, oh, this is actually what we want, our security for food. We want to source it locally. We want to have that connection again with the people who make our food. There are now movements against supermarkets in Belgium and in the Netherlands who are saying, let's try to live 40 days without going to a supermarket. And then people need to think, okay, where is my food coming from? And how, how can I do it maybe differently? And I think that's interesting. That's promising. And indeed, I also talk about meat. I mean, there is a massive connection between the corona pandemic and the meat producing industry. I mean, you could call it cow rona if you want, but the number of infections in these industrial meat factories is enormous. Apparently, it's the ideal environment for this virus, like cool, closed environments. But also the effect they already have on the environment around them is already known to be very big. And it's, it's such a problem now that the government in the Netherlands, which is also promising, is busy buying out the largest cow industry uh, factories and trying to reduce the whole sector by a third because they know that they can never meet the environmental legislation in Europe on nitrite if they don't reduce their massive meat industry. They are exporting to all over the world so the millions of animals that they are producing in the Netherlands. And they are now coming to terms with they've gone too far in that. So they're actually applying a kind of degrowth strategy with a state intervention into a sector that the state says, well, actually, maybe we shouldn't have gone that far. Maybe influenced by the climate court case against the Dutch state. I mean, the Dutch state is convicted by a judge, even in appeal for not doing enough on the climate. So, I mean, they have to do some new things now. And if they needed any reminder, if any governments needed a reminder, I mean, Corona, if you look at what it did through the meat industry, the cost of that industry to society is just enormous. And it was already so big. And and now it's even like a petri dish for pandemics as well. So... Exactly. I mean, we're pushing with this war on nature, as you call it, uh, a war on wildlife, and we're pushing animals outside of their natural habitats, that this has all sorts of repercussions, and also the cruelty to animals. So it's positive to see that there are a lot of these alternatives, whether you want to go vegan, or some people are, you know, now cell-produced meat. Yeah, has a handful of cows and a dozen pigs, and once every three months, one of them is slaughtered and we all get a package of 15 kilo. If we want, you can go vegan, you can be vegetarian, but if you want, you can then get like 15 kg, which you put in little packages in your freezer, but you get all parts of the animal. You can't just cherry pick a part of it. You can't let any part of the animal that occasionally does go to waste. And if you're not comfortable with eating the cow or pig that you've been caressing and meeting eye to eye on the farm every day, well then you've learned that you're better just don't eat meat. I mean, if you're not comfortable with that, you've seen the animal and your kids have maybe caressed it, then okay, stop eating it. And that's the thing, you know, it's back in your face. And in the last decades, we've like exported the ugly part of the economy. We don't see it and we don't want to see it. But if it's back in our face, then we think harder, you know, is it really what I want? These are the consequences. So in that sense too, relocalizing the food system is an opportunity to face up, get to reality of our food system and not just be the hypocrites that we are now, where we don't like the, the way they are treated, the animals, but we still go to McDonald's. 
Exactly. We, we want to distance it. As you say, we've been outsourcing for far too long. So we have the illusion that there are no consequences to our behaviors and yep. uh, we yep. have to bring yep. it back home and really understand. I want people to go discover your books, your latest turning point, front lines, see the work at the European Environmental Bureau. Before I close, because you we were talking about the message for, for young people and children, mm-hmm. but I want to just touch on this thing also about debt and money and how do we people always saying oh how will we finance it you know and you've talked about print money for other things we've seen that with the coronavirus i i see it as investment it's not so much printing money you're investing in our future because it'll be more expensive in the long run exactly that's a big topic money debt and wealth it's one of my chapters and we're actually in organizing a debate around that uh, there's a whole week of debates actually you can check it out fiscalmatters.eu 17 debates all over the world around how are we going to deal with the future of money now that we had the corona pandemic and suddenly banks were printing money, which is actually surprising. Like 2008, it took three years before the European Central Bank said, okay, okay, we'll print money, you know, because we seem to be needed. And now it took six days. They were printing money and they've printed trillions and they've made this money available to states. And we've come to the realization now that the states really need that money to invest in our health system, in our social security. And the difference with before is like, before 2008, we were saving banks. Now we are saving people, right? So maybe this time we can, instead of making the same mistake that we did after 2008, especially after 2011, when the banking crisis became the national sovereign debt crisis, then we started austerity. Okay, now it's it's time for the pensioners and the ill people and the unemployed to have less money so that we can pay off the debt. And, and the poor people were hit twice, basically. First time when they didn't get the money from the bailouts and the second time when they had to pay back for the debts. Well, there is hope that, and we're going to try everything we have to avoid making that mistake now. Because you can write off from states to the European Central Bank it's a very different thing than a household debt where you think like, yeah, you, yeah, you make a debt, you need to pay it back. Well, money is just a, a figure on a computer. It's just a social agreement. It's just you tap. It's not even printing anymore. It's just you tap a zero extra and you have it. And nowadays, ni- 95% of money is made by private banks who just make money because somebody wants to buy a house, for example. But that's not what the economy needs right now. We don't just need that as a solution. No, we need states investing in the right things. And if we come to that collective decision, that's what we need, which is different from the neoliberal ID, then we can also come to the collective conclusion, well, you know what? 30% of Belgium's national debt, to the, which is to the European Central Bank, we just write it off. And, and the same for other countries in Europe. And if we can do it globally, even better, but there is maybe more political, it's already difficult, but political reality uh, that that we can do this in the EU. And it's not even historically an aberration. It's actually more part of history. Because the last 5,000 years, we've had debts. And on average, every 50 years, we had a massive debt write-off. I mean, David Graeber, who recently passed away, wrote about that uh, debt the first 5,000 years. And the last time we did a massive reorganization was in 1953, which is now almost 70 years ago. That was after World War II to avoid countries in Europe getting stuck with their 200% debts and not being able to get out of the the morass to be able to really rebuild our societies. So we said, well, you know what? In the 50s, we'll just settle the score. 90% of the debt from Germany was written off from France, from other countries as well. 
we also taxed uh, the rich with 90% income tax on the highest uh, income earners. That was normal in France and in UK and in much of Europe for like 30 years between 1950s and 60s and 70s. And the state deficit dropped from 200 to 30%. And the state was then able to invest in all the things that created the golden period of the 60s and the 70s of welfare for everyone. And now we can do the same with not just welfare, but well-being as the focus. And the opportunity is really there because it's about well-being, our health. It's about our health, this crisis. So let's now push on and make sure that we are not again forced by the neoliberal ideologies to pay back this state's investment, is a better name than debt, by, by saving on all the things that uh, the poor people and the average people actually need like better and more hospitals, better and more public transports, better and more schools. That's what we now need for our well-being. And it has a value which we need to name, basically, and not just ignore. So yeah, there is a lot of work to do, but there is an opportunity now. And if you want to know more, there's, again, like there are 17 different debates on various aspects of fiscal issues, monetary issues all over Europe, fiscalmatters.eu. Yes. And so if I we could just, because you go in depth that we can't cover it all here, but just, you know, I think you have, you have a child, you have children. Um, yeah, two, two daughters. Yeah. Five yeah. and 12. And so we, we're thinking a lot about, you know, young people and not just our future, but their future. So as you think about the future, climate crises, education, technology, and this world that we're leaving for the next generation, how do you prioritize certain issues? And, you know, what what do you tell your children? You know, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, that's a big question. And it's a hard one because I struggle with this as my 12-year-old is becoming more aware and knowledgeable about what's going on in the world. And yeah, at some level, you try to protect her from the things I write about in my books, which are often quite, I mean, hard to deal with psychologically and I want to give her this innocence for a while on the one hand to just grow up without having all to worry about the weight of of the world's problems on her shoulder and on the other hand I mean she does watch some of the yeah news and she reads things and so you do want to give her something about what's going on but you filter a bit and and what I do then is is like when I spoke earlier about this need for myself to connect with nature to feel it, to, to love nature and then look at it differently than just by the ratio and the figures and the facts, you know, by just appreciating going in the mountains for a long distance walk and then coming at a high altitude and then seeing this horizon with layer after layer of new mountains and, and sun setting, you know, it, it creates an emotion, a feeling, which is a hook in your brain to which you come back. And if you don't have that, it's just figures. It's just distant. And so what I did, for example, with our oldest, we went for a 1000 kilometer hike when she was a baby, even when she was a baby, to start from the beginning with walking close to her parents in carrying back, just hearing the rivers, just the birds and the sun. That's what, the kind of thing we do. And, and we still try to do that regularly. My sister, she moved to the north of France in a really remote area with a lot of nature. And now we go there more and more regularly with the kids. And, and just let them roam free in the forest, you know? They have space there to just go out there and, and collect snails. And, and I mean, my five-year-old, she then came back with this dead mouse 
and she's oh daddy what do i do let's make a little grave and then and yeah yeah let's make a little grave and then she went for flowers on the grave of the little dead mouse and and then and then there were baby chickens and she was in the cage with the baby chickens i mean just giving opportunity to have positive emotions with animals with nature is is so important i think because it stays with you for the rest of your life and you're going to be a different kind of environmental protective person if you have the, this connection than if you're just growing up in the, just in an apartment in the city and then learning about it from podcasts and news. No, I mean, stop listening to me, just get out there. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to have the information so that when we go out into nature True. or we go to Nepal or we, we slow down our life, we appreciate it more. But I think that, you know, absolutely learning through doing, being on the ground. That's so important because the rest is theory, but we need, we need both. And so we thank you for your books that really help illuminate that and your message and your perseverance through what are difficult challenges. So thank you, Nick Manen and the European Environmental Bureau for your invaluable contribution to mitigating the effects of climate change and promoting environmental justice so that we can create a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you, Nick. Really great to hear and great points. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here and uh, good luck to you all with your endeavors on uh, helping the planet to become a better place. Thanks. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Merritt Kelly with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate producer on this podcast was Merrick Kelly. Digital media coordinator is Han Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.